Welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne in today's Western Germany that is over 2,000 years old. But until it became what it is today, this old city on the Rhine has endured a colorful and rich past. Hence it is full of events and narrations that represent European history as a microcosm. Presenting this week's random fact about Cologne, if Cologne Cathedral were built today, it would cost over 10 billion euros or 11 billion US dollars. Unfortunately, you would not get a building permit for such a building nowadays. Oh, those are two facts actually. Well, let's hit the intro. <sighs> Welcome back. Forgive me for yawning. But the exquisite food in this luxurious estate with this magnificent Dionysus mosaic in a dining room here in the northern part of Rome, Cologne, can make you tired. But we must not get tired. We still have so much to do. After all, it was all my fault. I was only talking about gravestones and not exploring the city with you. But we will do that today. With great thanks, we leave the estate. The landlord gives us a parting gift. I myself received a beautiful belt, and what did you get? We step out into the open. Back on the street we first notice how stuffy it is here. The air is thick and we immediately have to cough. That's not surprising. Everywhere in Cologne people heat with wood. Cobriquettes, gas heating or even district heating? There was no such thing back then. Many of the merchant ships that dock in the port of Cologne on the Rhine are loaded with firewood. Perhaps some of you remember the legend of Marsilius from a few episodes earlier who only went into battle against the rebellious Roman Vitalius to get firewood for the city. And even though having a fire in your fireplace at home can be romantic, maybe you heat with wood at home and that's fine, however, if 15,000 people do this in a confined space without any filter systems in the fireplace, then you have smog hanging in the air. It is not uncommon for this smoggy air to cause airway and eye diseases. It was a common illness in urban centers in ancient times. Although the great city wall protected ancient Cologne from external enemies, it also limited it to the small area of only about 1 square kilometer or 0.6 square miles. It was very narrow in the city. In contrast, however, there was a large number of doctors. First of all, there were numerous eye doctors. Of course, they did not have a university degree. There was no such thing as a university degree anyway. Experience was the great teacher here. In addition, surgeons, urologists and family physicians worked in the city 2000 years ago. As you can imagine, there are numerous gravestones that have been found with this job description but also numerous tools were found during excavations. Presumably there was one doctor for every 300 inhabitants. It's a nice thing actually. The bummer is of course, there was no health insurance. What about the doctor's fee? Well, that was always a matter of negotiation. Good luck with that. But where is what in this city? Well, let's return to the main road towards the city. The Cardo Maximus, today's Hohestrasse, which goes straight from north to south. Ancient Cologne was built from the beginning as a satellite city. For example, streets that met at right angles, the placement of public squares and buildings, everything had been planned from the outset. From a bird eye's view, the design of the chessboard-like city looked very similar to that of a Roman military camp. 
No wonder, since the Roman military camp itself was like a small town in its own right. So where was what actually located in Cologne? Today's cities are mostly the same in their structure, at least as far as the post-industrial cities of this world are concerned. In the center, there is often a very dense area where the service sector has displaced the former resident population. The further one goes out of the city center, the more residential areas and suburbs extend. Large, contiguous commercial and industrial zones are usually conveniently located outside the city, close to railways, airports, or highways. Well, these are today's cities, but ancient Cologne was not quite so far away from the modern city mentioned here. Only on a much smaller and simpler scale, of course. A complete picture is unfortunately not available to us. There are aspects of the urban structure of Rome Cologne that we can no longer reconstruct completely. What we know, the east side of the city towards the Rhine was a kind of a government district. In the south of this administrative district was a religious cult quarter. Here were state temples and sanctuaries. Among them was the temple on Capitoline Hill that later Emperor Trajan had offered a sacrifice when he visited the city. In the center of the administrative district, there was of course the Praetorium, the governor's palace for the governor of Lower Germania, that we know now quite well. Due to its proximity to the Rhine, there were probably also numerous warehouses here, which served as collective or intermediate storages for all kinds of goods. And here in the administrative district, they were also best protected. The danger of attacks from outside or even from riots in the city itself always had to be considered. But if the government district was in the east of the city, practically directly on the Rhine, where was the harbor itself? The city's harbor was outside the city walls at that time. So again, further east of the city wall. Here, on the Rhine island discovered by Agrippa, was the harbor. At the time of Agrippa, a tributary of the Rhine probably separated this island from the rest of the city, but we can assume that this tributary silted up quite fast. Excavations show that the inhabitants of Rome Cologne liked to dump all kinds of garbage here. From the noble house with the Dionysius mosaic, which we had just left, a main road leads to the east through one of the city gates on the Rhine towards the harbor. Like all these main roads, it was well paved, a one meter or one yard deep foundation of crushed earth, gravel and thicker stones allowed for quick drainage and rainwater seepage. At the top, large basalt stones served as a road surface, which were raised in the middle of the road so that the water always ran off to the side of the road and from there into a sewer. This harbor road can be viewed and also walked along in parts until today. It was discovered 50 years ago when an underground car park was planned to be built under the forecourt of Cologne Cathedral. I will put a picture of this Roman street and companion post of this episode on thehistoryofcologne.wordpress.com. But wait a minute, you will surely say on close inspection nowadays. Doesn't this road look pretty bumpy? And the stones are so far apart that a pedestrian only stumbles. Not to mention that you could not have nice drive over them with your carriage. This is worse than a modern road full of potholes. How can this be? This is the famous Roman road the Romans conquered the world with? Well, the Romans can't do anything for the current state of this section of road, which is 65 meters long and 5.5 meters wide. The stones were laid by the Romans in such a way that they fit like a puzzle, 
and from the smooth road surface. Once again, later generations are to blame. Because when the road was found in 1969, it had to be moved a few meters south. The workers carefully marked each stone with a number and recorded on a map where each stone belonged and how. Quasi a numbered puzzle, actually a good idea to be able to reconstruct the road in the best possible way later. Well, but the stones were marked with chalk. You might have guessed it. It came as it had to come. It started to rain and the chalk on the stones was washed off. At first the workers were at a loss. Then they put the road back together again rather badly than probably. That explains its present very chaotic condition. The arrangement of the stones is simply faulty, but they have probably made the best out of the situation, better than nothing. But let's stay in town for a while. The port is all well and good, but there is so much else to see in the city. Remember, in the last episode we entered the city from the north, so now if we follow the Cardo Maximus to the south, we meet the second main street of Roman Cologne. This street runs from west to the east. The Romans called main streets from west to east, the Cumanus Maximus. This street also exists until today. It is the today's Schildergasse, which is also part of a popular shopping zone of Cologne, which is nowadays a pedestrian-only zone. Those who go shopping there walk on the traces of the Romans. The really strange thing about this main street is this. Today's Hohestrasse, the Carlo Maximus, which is the counterpart going from north to south, is pretty well researched, as you learned in an earlier episode. But about its sibling brother going from the west to the east, the Decumanus Maximus we know very little of. Was it a street with residential buildings? Or mixed buildings with shops at the front and apartments at the back? Or was it a purely commercial shopping street as it is now in the 21st century? We don't really know, sadly. And here our ignorance unfortunately doesn't stop. At the crossroads of the Cado Maximus and Tucumanus Maximus, so today's Hohestrasse and Schildergasse, should have been the central marketplace, better known as the Forum, in almost all Roman colonies throughout the empire. If you have perhaps seen the picture of the city model of ancient Cologne on my homepage, I hope you have, if not, you should catch up on it as soon as possible. But then you will see the Forum there, drawn in the middle of the city, exactly at the crossing to both main roads, today's Hohestrasse and Schildergasse. From the design, the form was surely a large rectangular public square, which was several blocks in size. It was probably bordered on the sides by arcades to be able to continue the market in case of rain or too much heat in summer. According to the current historical state of research, however, there is no evidence whatsoever that the form was located here. That there was a forum, a central marketplace in Cologne, however, is certain. A city with 15,000 inhabitants at that time was already a large city in the ancient sense. Even if a mega city like Rome had 1 million inhabitants at that time, but exceptions confirm the rule. A city that also served as a central location of an entire region with numerous trade connections to the entire empire and to the neighboring Germania naturally had a central marketplace. Perhaps, all architectural evidence simply disappeared due to the 2000 years of permanent settlement. The most plausible theory for me is, it was simply built over. So there was a forum, and the forum in Cologne was of course the center of the city. 
A city at the edge of the empire like ancient Cologne was hardly able to guarantee the Roman living standards on its own. For the cultivation of olives, it is still too cold and not sunny enough in Cologne. Like all economic centers, Cologne lived from extensive import and export trade. As already mentioned, a large amount of firewood and building materials such as stones and timber was imported. Also sought after consumer goods from the Mediterranean area such as olives and olive oil, wine, textiles and jewelry were among the imports. But of course, Cologne had a lot to offer as well. Many inhabitants of the city had agricultural land outside the city or worked there. Since the flourishing period of Roman Cologne at the beginning of the 2nd century, trade had also experienced a strong upswing. It paid off to supply the empire as a border town on one hand, but also to trade with the Germanic tribes on the other side of the Rhine. Through this trade, Cologne exported for example amber from free not-Roman Germania to the empire. The Germanic tribes themselves saw no value in it. For them it was just reason. Raisin? You know what I mean, the stuff that comes out of trees. What it really is after all. However, the Romans were very fond of it as jewelry. As a Roman colony directly in front of the door of Free Germania, it was logical that Cologne was heavily involved in the amber trade throughout the empire. Glassware, decorated with snake threads, was Cologne's expert hit. Some were even found in Britain. Such glassware was often found during excavations in the city. A large number of them can be viewed in the Roman Germanic Museum in Cologne. For the glass industry and the pottery trade, there were good foundations in the area. Just outside the town, there were large deposits of sand and clay. Many pottery factories were found west of Cologne, on what is now Aachener Straße, back then a military road to the west. The clay deposits were also in the west of the city. Bronze foundries have also been uncovered there by archaeologists. During its Roman Golden Age from 100 to 250, Cologne developed into an important wholesale and long-distance trading center. Ships docked at the Rhine almost continuously and delivered goods in and out of the city. The Rhine was and still is an important trade route. But the traders also benefited from the good road network. The Roman roads had been the first infrastructure measures of Governor Agrippa many years before he had decided to even settle the Germanic Ubi in this area. And then there are agricultural products that are offered for sale on the forum. And then there are also agricultural products that are offered for sale on the forum in Cologne. The economy of ancient Cologne was certainly shaped by commercial enterprises as I have listed above, but agriculture will certainly have made up the largest share of the city's economic power. It is just the fact that glass and earthenware simply outlast the millennia in the earth better than a carrot or an apple tree. Thus, especially in museums, the impression can be created that Cologne was a purely commercial economy with glass and pottery factories. That is of course not true. I have to admit that when we approached Cologne on the main road in the last episode, I only mentioned clumsily that there were a few farms around Cologne. Instead, I put the entire focus of the first half more on gravestones, oh dear. Of course, Agriculture was a significant part of the economy in Cologne. Remember the very first episode of this podcast. In the Cologne lowland there is very fertile soil. The Germanic Ubi, who were settled here as farmers by the Romans, 
as well as later citizens of the empire, practiced intensive agriculture in the region. The Roman naturalist and aristocrat Pliny the Elder praised in his work on agriculture our beloved Ubii as particularly capable in being good farmers. The Ubii had even improved the Roman method of agriculture with mineral fertilization. Not quite as barbaric as always claimed by the Romans and posterity, these Germans, were they? There are many indications that the entire area of the Cologne lowland was divided into plots and systematically distributed to settlers. This is very likely. For it would be a strange coincidence that during excavations of ancient estates, it was found that the area was always 50 hectares big, and that the distance to the next estate to the other was almost always the same. Large quantities of agricultural products were exported through Cologne. A megacity like Rome could not feed itself at all at that time and was dependent on large grain imports from all across the empire. The other part of the agricultural products remained in the colony on the Rhine. Wheat, barley and to a small extent rye were among them. Pulses like peas and lentils were also important staple foods because the filling potato, as well as french fries or should we not better say Gallic fries, did not yet exist in Europe. That would still take almost 1600 years. All this was traded on the forum in Cologne. Of course, there were small shops and street shops or even backyards all over the city, but here at the forum life was happening. News was exchanged and rumors were spread for the first time. Only one block away from the intersection of the two main roads where the forum could have been was a thermal bath. I talked about those baths before. In the thermal baths, women often had all their body hair removed. It was in vogue. The method was hardly any different from today. Semi-liquid beeswax on the appropriate spot, a rag on it and rip. Ouch. Even in the case of female slaves, the masters and mistresses of the house made sure that their female servants were accordingly clean in regarding body hygiene. Ancient art shows us that men were portrayed as hairless and that this was their ideal form, except for the head. If you were bald, you were ridiculed in public for lack of masculinity. Still, having chest, arm or leg hair was regarded as masculine. And later Roman emperors even had beards, a change in fashion that would have been unthinkable in the time when Caesar was around. Having beards back then was regarded as barbaric. As far as the range of office was concerned, the thermal baths were not much different from today's wellness oasis. You could get a massage, swim and relax in the hot water. But one thing was different. It was not quite there at all. People drank wine, chatted with their friends, played sport at the top of their voices like wrestling or lifting weights. That must have been a loud noise in the rooms, to the anger of the neighboring residents. You can also see this thermal bath on the Roman city model on my homepage. It is quasi left of the alleged location of the forum. This is where the Sizilienstraße runs nowadays. As a tourist you probably don't know this street that well. But it is the street on which the tram drives in west-east direction over the main city squares of Neumarkt and Heumarkt. For those of us who may live in Cologne or know the city a little bit the written sources also mention in the city a temple of Mercury, the god of traders and thieves, 
an ironic feature in my opinion. Mercury was almost identical with the Greek god Hermes. Where exactly this temple stood, you probably already guessed it, it is unknown. The same applies to an unlocated temple of Jupiter, whose highest priest was the respective acting Roman governor. And last but not least, we should not forget the altar of the Ubi, the central sanctuary of Cologne, which was so important that they even kept it in the name of Roman Cologne. Remember, Colonia Claudia Ara, that's the Latin word for altar, Agapinensium. It is so disappointing, it hasn't been found yet. Maybe it was deconstructed after a while, maybe. We don't really know. I know I promised to take you on a tour through Roman Cologne, but unfortunately we still don't know the exact location of many buildings. We need to estimate where they might have been, analyzing other ancient Roman cities that are well researched. The world famous Pompeii is a great help here. As the volcanic eruption in the year 79 preserved the city well, close to today's Naples in Italy. Maybe Cologne has a circus like in Rome. With a circus, I do not mean one of those things with a tent roof and clowns juggling balls, but something like the Circus Maximus in Rome, a horse racetrack with chariot races, for example. This was actually present in every provincial capital, so Cologne should have had one as well. However, such a large building would certainly have left visible traces that could be proven archaeologically. However, none of this has been found in Cologne so far. Perhaps the horse races took place on the streets of the city without a stadium of their own. The ancient city of Rome had done the same before the construction of the Circus Maximus. But that is pure speculation on my part. Also missing is any trace of an amphitheater, a smaller version of the Colosseum in Rome, so to speak. But that must have existed with the greatest certainty in Cologne. It was a must-have of a Roman city. Gladiator fights and theater performances were the cultural spectacle of that time. Rome's rule was based on bread and games for the people. Everyone knows this proverb. Above all, numerous Roman gravestones in this area prove that there were gladiators in the city of Cologne and that they did their often not very healthy work in Cologne. One gravestone testifies that a deceased person caught 50 bears in just six months most likely destined for the arena in Cologne, so that the gladiators could fight against them. Another gravestone is dedicated to a freedman named Aquilus. On the gravestone, he himself is depicted as a fighting gladiator carved in stone. Numerous glass and ceramic goods produced in Cologne also show scenes from gladiator fights. As always, I would have loved to give you pictures of all these archaeological jewels, but as I said several times before, the Roman Germanic Museum is currently being renovated. It is still closed for several years. So to make you believe that I'm not telling you fake news, I'm posting a link in the companion post of this episode on the historyofcologne.wordpress.com so that you can view the exhibits as pictures. Many of the texts are in German and in Latin, but you will be able to recognize some of them by my descriptions. So an amphitheater has certainly existed in Cologne. Only it has not been found yet, if it is ever found. Alright, so much for where the big public buildings stood. But what about the normal people? The east of the city served quasi as the government quarter, we talked about that. 
Therefore, it can be assumed that west of the Carlo Maximus, so the bigger proportion of the city, were the residential quarters of the citizens of ancient Cologne. Where exactly the normal people lived is not known either. The living quarters will have made up a large part of the city. Cologne was indeed known for glass and ceramic goods, but the factories that produced them were placed outside the city. The high temperatures and open fire posed a high fire hazard for the city. For this reason and because of the space required for the residential buildings, there were many production plants just outside the city in front of the city wall. How did these residential homes inside of Cologne look like? Well, multi-story houses in Cologne were probably very unlikely. Most of these houses were so-called strip houses, which were common in the Gallic-Germanic region. I hope that is the right term, I couldn't find a proper English translation of this word. These houses were very narrow in wideness, but long houses up to 40 meters long at the back. Maybe some of these houses may had a second floor, but not more. This might have been a rarity. Common citizens lived in barren, small, dark rooms, often with only one bed with a mattress of straw in it. Life took place on the streets and in public places. To go to the toilet or to wash yourself, you went to the thermal bath or to the nearest latrine. A common inhabitant didn't have a kitchen at home either. This was to reduce the risk of fire. Actually, you only slept in your apartment. When it got dark early in winter, only oil lamps with their weak light and heavy smut brought some brightness into your home. Also, these oil lamps were a constant sword of Damocles. Often their use caused fires in the city due to carelessness of their owners. So the city guard of Cologne was usually rather a fire brigade and not primarily a security force. These houses usually had no windows, if only as very small inlets in the house wall. Even many rich citizens could not afford glass windows. There was also no water connection in the apartment. Only rich had it in their estates. But the water network in Cologne was so dense that you didn't have to walk more than 50 meters or yards on average to get water out from a well. After all, a 95 kilometer long water line must be good for something, right? Residential areas outside the city have also been identified by archaeologists. They served some citizens as weekend houses or as country estates. And since many commercial enterprises were located outside the city, Apartments for the craftsmen were built nearby. This fact alone testifies that it must have been very peaceful in the Rhineland in the years 100 to 250. Who else would dare to build their homes outside the safe city walls? Now, we have already spent some time in Rome Cologne. What strikes us is not quite as clean here as it always looks on the beautiful city model of Rome Cologne. As already said, the air is a bit stuffy, even the garbage is dumped on the street in front of our feet every now and then. Of course, most of the buildings did not have a sewage connection either, therefore the garbage landed on the street. The next drain would flush it into a drain and then into one of the sewers that ended in the Rhine. Or maybe a work slave would take a pity on the dirt and clean it up. Also, the walls of the houses are sooty in many places because of the bad air. And sometimes it will have been a torch whose carrier was too close to the wall. Speaking of house walls, many of them are smeared or painted with graffiti. That is entirely in the eye of the beholder. Graffiti can be found all over the city. They are quasi the social media platform of antiquity. On some walls you can find insults. 
then there someone anonymously confesses his love for someone else. Some graffiti are also of a practical nature and serve as signposts, advertisements, or represent political election ads of a candidate for a public office. Make Rome great again. Of course, there are also religious messages here and there. But as I said, we will come to the topic of religion in ancient Cologne in a separate episode. I know it sounds degenerate, but now at the end of this afternoon, let's eat something. Even though we have already eaten in the morning and later in the rich man's house with the Dionysus mosaic. It should be about 5 p.m. now. The Romans didn't have anything like breakfast and considered it as decadent. With the Romans, this was the first meal of the day, usually in the late afternoon. But then, when they ate in the late afternoon, there were several courses the Romans ate. And this applied to rich and the common population. But with the latter, the food was not quite as exquisite. Like we did in the last episode, we stop in a so-called carpona, a tavern. What is served to us is mostly familiar to us, even from today's point of view. As an appetizer and as a starter, we are served olives and boiled eggs, along with some bread. As a main course, we order a meat dish in milk dough porridge. In our case, it's a chicken leg. But that was very expensive for those times. Therefore, most of the inhabitants were involuntarily vegetarians. But what rich and poor had in common, everyone ate the so-called garum sauce. This garum sauce is about as important as today the German Maggi sauce or soy sauce is. This garum sauce was put over almost everything edible. The taste of this sauce, which consists of fermented fish innards and brine, is said to be similar to today's Ah, now we come to this word. Worcestershire sauce? Was Worcester, Worcester, Worcester sauce? How can anyone pronounce this word correctly, even for native English speakers? Or to come back to my script, it tastes like East Asian fish sauces. As a seasoning, pepper was also available in those days, but it had to be imported from far away India by land. This made pepper a way too expensive commodity. Mostly other regional alternative products were used, such as juniper berries for example. For dessert, the rich liked to eat apples. In those days, apples were a pure culinary luxury and completely different from today, not yet at home in this region. The Romans themselves had first brought them to Italy from the Middle East. That was the good thing about the Romans. They brought so many culinary delights to the Rhineland, Besides apples, they also brought cherries and grapes to the Rhine. Today, 50,000 tons of apples are harvested annually in the Rhineland alone. And starting in the south of Cologne, large wine-growing areas extend as far as to the Alps. German wines are highly regarded worldwide and are in the top league with wines from France and the Mediterranean nowadays. Despite the most modern technology, the cultivation and harvesting methods have hardly changed in the past 2000 years. So when you're on a ship as a tourist in, in Germany on the Rhine, when you see the numerous vineyards in the Rhine Valley, you are looking at one of the most visible legacies of the Romans in the Rhineland. And speaking of wine, it was drunk heavily diluted in ancient times, quasi as a wine spritzer. Whoever drank his wine purely was immediately considered a drunkard among his fellow citizens. 
even at parties, the rich Romans always had a chosen guest who determined the mixture ratio between water and wine. The alcohol in the wine was used to disinfect water that was often not too safe to drink after all, even coming from a 95km waterline. And even though the Romans were good at many things, as far as the fermentation of wine was concerned, the Romans were often not able to tell exactly when the wine was really perfect in taste. Often the wine got sour and tasted bad. The Romans helped themselves by mixing honey and dates into the wine. This gave the wine a richer and better flavor. I personally don't like it that way. So I prefer to be drunkard in the eyes of ancient Romans and drink my northern Italian Lugana wine cool and naturally pure without anything diluting it. It would be too bad for the good wine to be blended with any water or spices. But for the Romans we are all barbarians anyway, so why should we care? Let's stop here for this time and try to find a closure. Let me try it like this. Historical events ended with the visit of Emperor Trajan in Cologne in the year 98 in this podcast for Cologne. As far as the action is concerned, that's it for a long time. After Trajan's visit around the year 100, another 150 years pass by in which Cologne is not mentioned a single time in writing in any source. You may have noticed, everything I told you here today is based almost exclusively on archaeological excavations and finds. Of course, something must have happened in those 150 years in Rome Cologne. But as peaceful and prosperous and beautiful as it may have been in Cologne during this golden age of prosperity, if there are no major conflicts, wars or governors of the region declaring themselves the new emperor, there is nothing interesting to report about that city far away from Rome. And that's just the way it was. For 150 years, we learn absolutely nothing in the scriptures. That's why I had chosen a large time frame for these two episodes, the years between 100 and 250. Now, as sad as it sounds, we have no choice but to jump to the point where Cologne reappears in written history. For this, we must also return one time again to the stage of Roman politics the so-called second year of the four emperors of the year 193 will pave the way for events that would once again lead to a total chaos in the empire, including for Cologne itself. I will only give you a brief summary of these events since we are already at the end of this episode. The winner of the second year of the four emperors was a man called Septimius Severus. He found the Severan dynasty in the year 193, but this dynasty was not stable at all, it demoralized five emperors in a short time and was to end only 40 years later in 235. All these events were foretaste of the chaos that would take place in the second half of the 3rd century, the so-called crisis of the 3rd century, and it would above all put Cologne and the Gallic-Germanic region in turmoil again, as it had been under Emperor Vitalius nearly 150 years before. After that, the Roman Empire and Cologne too would not be what they had been before. I hope you are excited to learn more about it. I sure do. So be there next time as well. So long. As always, thank you and auf 
Wiedersehen. Follow me on Instagram, Facebook and all those stuff. Thank you.